If you have a Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 3. Um, we've been in the book of Genesis now for several weeks, and uh, last week we finally got into chapter 3. It's taken us quite a, quite a while to get into chapter 3, and um, kind of the unraveling of the peace of God, as we looked at last week. And so what I want to do is I want to read verses uh, 7 through 24, and... Um, And then I'll pray, ask God for help. Verse 7. Do you guys know? Uh, Eve uh, took of uh, the forbidden fruit, gave some to Adam. Adam ate it. Their eyes were opened, verse 7. And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked. And I hid myself. And he said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you've you gave to be with me. She gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent. He deceived me, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, and above all the beasts of the field, and on your belly you shall go, and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel." To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and you have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and dust you shall return. And the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and uh, for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which it was taken. And he was, drove out the man, and at, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim with flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way back to the tree of life. Let's pray. Lord, I ask God that you would give us ears to hear this morning and eyes to see from your word. I don't think that anyone got up this morning and put, got dressed and came to church to hear from a man. Lord, we all want to hear from you, God. I pray that you would speak to this church prophetically. I know that a very familiar passage, a passage that we all probably know very well. Some of us write it off as myth. Others of us write it off as just ancient story. I pray, God, that it would have living power this morning. There's something about it that would strike at the very core of what we are, of what we believe, of how we're broken, and I pray it would begin to put us back together again. And so I pray that we would see Jesus in all of this. Lord, I pray, God, that you would speak to us. I need your help desperately. Would you anoint me, my mind and my mouth, my heart, God? 
So humbled by this text, humbled to stand before people to teach your word. We look to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. We um, uh, started and been looking and studying the book of Genesis. And finally, last week, we did come to Genesis chapter 3, the fall of humanity. And up until Genesis chapter 3, man and woman lived in perfect harmony with each other, with the environment. And we said this um, ever since we started this book. Their bodies had perfect harmony. There wasn't any disease in the garden with Adam and Eve. There wasn't, there wasn't sickness. There wasn't cancer. There wasn't Alzheimer's. There wasn't AIDS. There wasn't eating disorders or obesity. There wasn't the flu season. Their bodies were in perfect harmony with itself inside. They had perfect bodies. Adam and Eve had perfect bodies. They lived. The garden was a perfect environment. They knew perfect harmony with their environment. There wasn't natural disasters or the threat of global warming. There wasn't weeds in the garden or thorns on rose bushes. They had a perfect environment. Their relationship knew perfect harmony. They had a perfect relationship with one another. There wasn't divorce or abuse or neglect or abandonment or cheating or even hurt feelings for that matter. I mean, Adam never hurt Eve's feelings and vice versa. They had perfect relationship with each other and most importantly, they had a perfect relationship with God. They walked with God. The Hebrew prophets had a word for this kind of harmony, this sort of peace. They called it shalom, and we looked at that last week. Today, all of us want this peace. We want this peace with our bodies. We hate it when we get sick. We want this peace in relationships. I mean, if you've ever had your heart broken, you know you want this sort of peace. If you've ever been fired from a job, you know you want this sort of peace. If you've ever had something taken from you, if your bike's been stolen in the city or your car window's been smashed in, you're like, this is not the way it's supposed to be. We all want this peace. And we might even get glimpses of it. I mean, there might be a perfect, warm San Francisco October or November where everything is perfect, it's warm outside, there's peace in your job, there's peace in your apartment building, there's peace in your, in your own heart with God, and you just go, God, this, in my little world, this is the way it's supposed to be. Like, there is this peace. There was that peace when the day I got married, I got married in, um, my wife and I grew up in Bakersfield, and in October we got married, and it's normally like 138 degrees in October. <laughs> but this day was perfect, the sun was going down, and we, were in the, we got married in this, um, this art gallery garden, and it was beautiful, and, and people were walking in, and I um, saw my wife as she was walking down the aisle, and I'm like, this like, sliver of, of this memory of, like, this is it. This is the way it's supposed to be. Like, everything's the way it should be. It's as if, because we want this peace, we fight for it. We wrestle for it. I mean, some people want peace in their relationships and we want peace in ourselves. Some, when we lay down to bed, we want our minds just to shut up for a minute. Can I just have mental peace? We want peace. People march for this peace and protest for this peace and occupy for this peace. People actually fight for this kind of peace. It's like humanity has a collective memory of Genesis chapter 2. Every single one of us want peace. It's like we have this collective memory. Humanity remembers. We don't all remember when it was, but we all have this memory of the way things are supposed to be. And we're all scratching and pining to get back there. But as of right now, we all live east of Eden. We all live on this side of the garden where there's brokenness and death and toil. What happened? 
Well, simply put, sin happened. And you guys that um, came to church probably could gamble on the fact that churches talk about sin. They probably talk about sin a lot. What scriptures teach is that the reason why things are not the way they should be and why we're all trying to fight to get back to this place of what we think should be peaceful is because of sin. Last week, we called this the vandalism of shalom. Allow me to read from Cornelius Plantinga's book, the one we quoted last week, his book, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. He says this, God hates sin, not just because it violates his law, but even more practically, it's because it violates shalom, because it breaks the peace, because it interferes with the way things are supposed to be. In some, shalom is God's design for creation and redemption. Sin is blamable human vandalism of these great realities and therefore an affront to their architect and builder. See, sin isn't just doing bad things. We all might classify, well, sin is doing these like 10 bad things I can't do. No, sin is a lot bigger than that. Sin is a vandalism. It's a, it's a blamable human vandalism of the peace of God. We can do this with our good deeds. We can do this with our bad deeds. We can do this with making a lot of money. We can do this in our poverty. We could do this in church. We could take something as good as church and make it about us, as good as church leadership, as good as church whatever, and make it about us and destroy church. We could have something as good as a perfect 11-person small group that we're a prayer meeting and someone wants to get in. We're like, no, we can't really let you in. We have this tight little group here. And we can make it about us and ruin that. Why? Because it's not just doing bad things. Vandalism of shalom is breaking the peace that God has set in order. See, but in our modern language, we don't talk about sin much. It's religious language and speak that's reserved for the pastor to make people feel bad on Sunday mornings. In our lives, the word sin now finds its home mostly in, in dessert menus. That's where we talk about sin. Sin is chocolate decadence or peanut butter binge. That's sinful, okay? This cake is sinful. Lying is not sinful. This dessert's sinful. Our new measure for sin is caloric. It's not moral and it's not spiritual. The scriptures will not allow us to get away with this, this sort of view of sin. In Genesis chapter 3, it teaches that the essence of sin is an outright denial of our identity as creatures being made in the image of God. What sin is, this, at its core, what sin is, is you are a creature created in the image of God, created in God's shalom, in his, in his perfection, in his order. And what sin is, is denying that fact, is denying that I'm a creature created by God, and therefore he has set up the way I should live. It's like, I'll do my own thing. I'll live my own way. In Genesis chapter 3, it says that it's, sin is independence from an existence where God tells us what's good and what's evil. I mean, that, that was the promise of eating from the forbidden tree. We can be like God, knowing good and evil. It's not like this tree, it's not this, like the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was like gold and like was glowing and like orbiting like whoa, whoa, whoa. It's like, he was, look at this tree. And Adam was, look at this tree. Let's eat of this fruit because as soon as we bite this glowing, awesome tree, we're gonna become like God. It was just a tree. And God said, don't eat it. And if they did eat it, what they were saying was this. We will decide for ourselves what good is. Hebraic word for good, the Hebrew word for good, means peaceful, means things are in order, means favorable. 
We will decide for ourselves what's favorable and what's ill. We don't need God. We don't need you to decide. I'll decide for myself. That's what we looked at last week. I'll decide for myself what, what the law should be. I'll decide for myself what relationships should be. I'll decide for myself what I should do with my money. I'll decide for myself what I'll do with my sexuality. I'll decide for myself. I don't need you, God. Thank you very much. Your Bible's really helpful in places. It's cool, kind of confusing. I'll decide for myself. That is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so when they were tempted with it, you can be like God if you eat from this tree, meaning you can be your own God, meaning you can decide for yourself what's good. You can decide for yourself what's evil. So what happened in Genesis 3 is that our first parents chose to be their own gods. We don't need a God telling us what is good and what is evil, what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's bad. We'll decide that for ourselves. And most of us feel inclined this way today anyway, so it's not anything that we can argue with. The essence of temptation, Genesis 3, was for independence that enables humanity to decide for itself what will help and what will hinder. It's not up to God anymore. It's up to us. We'll take it from here. And what Cornelius Plantinga calls this is blamable human vandalism. Blamable human vandalism. Taking it for ourselves. I will take that. Thank you very much. This is the essence of sin. This is the vandalism of shalom. This is destroying or vandalizing the way things are supposed to be. And so in our text today, what we get to now is the, the covering. What happens is once they sin, there's this covering. So I want to look at our, our text today in, in two parts. We can't be exhaustive. We haven't been able to get super exhaustive in our text so far. But what I want to look at is the covering of shame and the character of God. The covering of shame and the character of God. First, the covering of shame. What the serpent promised Eve was that if she ate the fruit, we don't know what kind of fruit it was, the forbidden fruit, we'll just call it that, their eyes would be opened and they would be like God. They would be brought into this whole new plane of reality. Now, the irony is this. Eve bit the fruit. Adam had a bite. Adam, who was with her, by the way, we talked about that last week. And the text says that as soon as they ate this fruit, both of their eyes were opened, okay? the, The serpent was right. Their eyes were open, but here's the irony. And they knew that they were naked. Wait, wait, you're like, whoa, I knew knew that already. They should have known that. They actually said that. The the text says that in chapter 2. Look at chapter 2, verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This one fleshness is like they had... They, they mirrored each other. They, they looked at each other and they, they knew that I find myself in you and you find yourself in me. And they had this completeness. They had this one fleshness. And then it says in verse 25, and the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. They were, they were naked. So their eyes were open and they saw something that they already knew. Well, what happens here is they already knew they were naked. But what they had not had their eyes open to yet was shame. Up to this point, there was only innocence. The serpent was right. When they ate the fruit, their eyes were open, but their eyes were open to shame. Their eyes were open to guilt. Their eyes were open to the reality of sin. Their hiddenness came from shame. They needed to hide, and their need to hide came from something that sin created. And this is, this is fascinating. We're still in the creation narrative of Genesis. And what this says, what chapter 3 of Genesis says is that sin creates something. 
Sin creates in its wake some sort of thing that has to be removed. Sin creates a reality. That's what Genesis 3 says. Sin creates a reality. It wouldn't be wrong to say that sin triggers the creation of some sort of thing here. As soon as Adam and Eve eat of this forbidden tree, something is created. Remember, it's still the creation account. Some commentators say that sin was created ex nihilo, out of nothing. This came out of nowhere. It was not there before. Shame was not there. Guilt was not there. The need to cover was not there. And all of a sudden, in chapter 3, it was there. The creation of sin. Adam and Eve saw it, recognized it, and tried to hide it. Sin is not just a reality, but a particular kind of reality. See, when you and I sin, something concrete happens. The Bible will go on from Genesis throughout the rest of Scripture to use different metaphors and language to talk about sin. Some of the language that, that describes sin is sin as a weight. Sin is heavy. You are heavy laden. You are burdened with sin. It's a heavy weight. In Genesis chapter 4, which we're going to get to next week, Cain says that he cannot bear the punishment of his sin. He can't bear the weight of his sin. Sin has weight. It weighs you down. The, the psalmist David declared in Psalm 32 that when he didn't confess his sins, his bones wasted away and God's hand was heavy upon him and his strength was dried up as the heat of summer. There's this weight that happens with sin. But not just that, the scriptures talk about sin as a stain. Sin is a stain that you have to cleanse yourself from. You're stained, you're unclean. Sins, Isaiah says, are, have made you crimson red. The psalmist says that give us clean hands and give us pure hearts because our lives, our hearts, our mouths are stained with sin. In the New Testament, you see sin as a debt. You fall into debt. You become enslaved to sin. Paul writes in Romans that the wages of sin is death. And this thing, this thing that sin creates is what Adam and Eve are trying to cover up. There's a new reality in the garden. There's another character. There, there's something new that they're trying to hide. Look at what James says. If you go to the New Testament, if you have Bible, you can flip there really fast or if you're really fast. I have a cheater ribbon, so I'm just going to read it right now. It says this, do not be deceived Oh, wait, actually, no. Let me skip down to verse um, 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Now, listen, listen to the way that, that, that James kind of personifies sin, shows sin. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Sin is a reality that's born. Like you have a temptation and a desire and they have intercourse and there is a conception that happens and then you give birth to sin and sin grows up and kills you. That's what James says. Sin has this reality to it. Sin has this weight. Sin has this, sin has the possibility of killing you. When you and I sin, there's something there. You know this, I know this with my spouse. When you sin against your spouse, there's something there. I was trying to think of this morning of a, uh, of a way that I, I had to ask my wife Ashley for forgiveness. Or, and I couldn't think of a, like a huge example, but we argue that's one of the things married couples do really well. And um, when we argue, there's times where I have to go and, 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 and when we're arguing, we're you know, starting arguing back and forth. It starts with something stupid like the refrigerator door was left open or something silly like that. And then it escalates to like these huge sweeping things, right? And so when it gets really, really big and emotional like that, like you can't just stop and go, let's hug it out. I mean, I want to do that. But you just can't do it because the, 
she might have said something that really hurt me. I probably said something that hurt her. And then so there's this sin in the room. There's something there. And you can't just go, we're out. You have to address it. You have to ask for forgiveness. You're like, I'm sorry I said that. This is what I meant by, you have to address the sin. There's something, you know this, when you've sinned against a friend, a roommate, it could be something as silly as you ate their groceries to on accident, you were hungry or whatever. You didn't, they didn't mark it or whatever. Or, or something as vile as them just saying something horrific behind your back. There's something in the apartment. There's another reality living there. And it comes in the form of ignoring the other person. It comes in the form of like the silent treatment. It comes in the form of like passive aggressiveness. It comes in the form of like just being mean and say, it's there. And you, you can't do anything. Like it's a new reality that has been created. Something has been born in our apartment. It's sin. And it's, it's, it's here. You know this when you sin against God. And you pray. And you got to address it. You can't just like sin and then go in prayer. Sometimes we just run from prayer, don't we? We're like, I'm not even going to. I'm going to give it a week to pray again. Let's let this thing pass over. Let this kind of blow over. I think A.W. Tozer said this. is probably him, but maybe not. He said the mark of maturity is when the gap, the time gap between sin and repentance shortens. That's the mark of a mature Christian. If you are, if you sin and, and you can quickly come to a place of prayer, you know that has to be addressed. You know that there's even something there in your relationship with God. Sin creates a reality. Sin creates a thingness. There is a weight. There's a thing to sin. So Adam and Eve sow fig leaves to cover themselves up because there is this new reality in the garden. It's sin. It's shame. It's guilt. It wasn't passed on to them from previous generations. It wasn't that, well, my parents made me feel really shameful. It wasn't that at all. All they knew was this. If I eat the tree, I'm going to die. They didn't die. Immediately shame entered in. Immediately guilt entered in. And then it says in verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. How ironic. Now they're hiding among the trees. Who told them to hide? Did Satan go, okay, eat this tree, now go hide. Okay? God's going to find you. It's going to be really fun. Like, no, he didn't say that. Who told them to hide? Adam was like, let's play a game. It was, it was almost like their visceral response to sin is to hide. This is our visceral response to sin. It's to cover it up, to hide it. Uh, many of you know that um, when I lived in, uh, in Santa Barbara for a while before we moved up here to start this church, I worked at a bank and I got fired. But I don't know if you know the story of how I got fired because what would, I'm not really good with numbers or money and I don't know why I got a job at a bank. But, um, but I would like get to talking to people and I really like people, I love being around people, I love talking. So people come up to my teller window thing. I was a teller, by the way. And uh, they would ask me for money or whatever. And, and I would just get to talking and I would forget to count or lose count or something. Or they stuck together the dollars or the hundreds or whatever. And I would always give people more money. And they, they would love me. I was the best teller in all of Santa Barbara. And... Um, And so I was on probation to where it's like, okay, if your drawer does not balance consecutively for 30 days, you're going to be fired. Just 
We love you. We don't want to fire you. That's what corporate said. Like, this is our last thing, okay? This is our last straw. If you can't balance your... So I was like on day 28. It was two weeks before Christmas. Day 28, my drawer was off by $100 at the end of the day. No, no, middle of the day. I would count my drawer like, like compulsively. So middle of the day, I realized it was off by 100 You know the second... The first thing I did, I was like, I took out 100 for my checking account and put it in my own drawer to hide what I did. I did that. I went home. I went, and I was like, I told my wife, I'm fired. She's like, you got fired? I'm like, well, kind of. I took out $100 our check in to cover it, though. I think we're good. And she's like, are you allowed to do that? I'm like, I don't, I mean, it's my money, right? I mean, I don't know. Like, I, I, I think so. I mean, no, probably not. It's probably, like, against the law. <laughs> so then I told another friend of mine, and he's like, that is really wrong. I'm like, yeah, I think you're right. I think that is wrong. So... That night, I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to go to, to, to work tomorrow, and I'm going to tell them what I did. I'm going to tell them. But the thing that, like, that night, I, the reason why I couldn't sleep was that how my, no, and I was, I've, I've been a pastor at this time for quite a while, and was on, was, like, planning to plant a church. I'm like, how quick my heart still covers up my sin. How fast my heart still goes, oh, let, let's cover this up. Let's act like this never happened. Let's, let's even take an, our own personal hit to make sure this is right. This is our visceral response to sin. This might be yours with your spouse, with your roommates, with your job. This is our response to sin. And so maybe the question today for you is what God said to Adam. Where are you? And if that's the, the, the lingering, nagging question in the back of your mind from God, then I want to let that sit for a second. Where are you? Where are you hiding? What are you trying to hide from? Why are you covering up your sin? You know it's there. It's a reality that has been birthed. One of my favorite authors, Frederick Buechner, said this. Beneath our clothes, our reputations, our pretensions, beneath our religion or lack of it, we are all vulnerable both from the storm without and to the storm within. And if ever we are to find true shelter, it is with the recognition of our tragic nakedness and the need for true shelter that we have to start. Would you realize that you're naked and you're trying to cover yourself up? Would you realize that you're exposed? And you need to stop trying to hide. That's where it starts. We all tragically, we are all tragically naked. And the, re- the thing is, we can't cover up ourselves. We can't cover ourselves up. You can't pay down your own debt of sin. It's too heavy. It's too much. The wages of sin is death. You can't bear the weight of your sin. It's too much to bear. And you can't clean yourself. No matter how many times you come to church. This is the deception of religion and religious activity. See, religion carries with it the idea that you can clean yourself. If I just go to church enough, if I take enough communion, if I go to the prayer team enough, I can cleanse myself. Like Lady Macbeth trying over and over again in vain to wash the blood spot from her hand. Out, damn spot, out. You cannot do it. Religion might be the easiest place to hide. Like you're thinking, wait, why would I hide in church from God? I mean, have you ever played hide-and-go-seek when you were a kid? And sometimes the best places to hide were the most obvious places to hide. It's like, oh, they'll never, ch- I'm not going to check there. That's obvious. 
Like you just hide right next to the pole and the person's counting right there. You're like, Psh. They, won't, they won't check here. Sometimes the most obvious place to hide is the best place to hide. The obvious place to hide from God, church. So you're here, week in and week out, hiding from God. We hide behind blame. This is exactly what Adam did. When God asked him, if he ate from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat, what did he say? He said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Okay, not only is he blaming his wife, but he's blaming God. Look what he says. He says, okay, the woman you gave me, she gave me. Listen, people just give me stuff, God. I mean, I didn't ask for a girl, but you gave me a woman. I didn't ask for the tree. She gave it to me. Everyone's just giving me stuff, like free stuff just coming in all the time. And I'm just taking it. And you said it's not good for me to be alone. You were wrong, okay? Obviously. Obviously, I was better off alone. Blaming God, blaming the woman. This is pretty common. The woman doesn't do any better. She blames the serpent. It's not my fault. I'd never asked to be born. I never asked for these afflictions. I've never asked for these pains. I've never asked to be born in this family. I never asked for these problems. I never asked for these things. It's not my fault. You made me like this, God. We blame our temptations on God. God, I never asked to be tempted like this. I think what comes through the clearest, though, is the character of God. Because what God does, as soon as Adam and Eve eat from this tree, you notice that God seeks them out. You see the seeking and the saving nature of God. God is not hiding. If you think God is hiding from you, it's probably you hiding from him. God is not the one hiding here. God is the one seeking. God doesn't wait for the first humans to turn back to him. He doesn't wait for them to to meditate good enough or set up some sort of religious system to get back to him. God seeks after them. God goes after them. God is the great initiator. You see this throughout scripture. God goes after us. I didn't grow up in a Christian home at all. And once I became a Christian, after being a Christian a while, I would look back on my life to see all those places where God was pursuing me, initiating, putting things in my heart, desires in my heart, putting me in weird situations, and friends inviting me to church, and so on and so forth. God is the great initiator. And the most vile aspect of human sin is not what it did to us, but what it did to God. It made God distant. So one commentator writes, the most lamentable result of sin to an Israelite is not that it makes people bad, but it makes God distant. See, the loss of paradise is not found in losing good soil or perfect bodies, but the presence of God. So God pursues them. He draws near. But with him comes something that you and I don't like to deal with. With God's presence comes judgment. God comes and he judges. Last week we said that this is the thing that the serpent said would not happen. God, you will not surely die. The first attack on God was an attack on the, the, the doctrine of judgment. God won't judge you. There is no judgment. He's all love. He's all grace. There's no judgment. But God comes on the scene. The first thing he does, he starts to judge. If you read it in reverse, he curses the ground. Death is brought out. 
Man was from the dust, and to the dust they shall return. And the dust will produce, the dirt will, the soil produce thorns and thistles, and you will toil all the days of your life. This is what it means. Adam, you're going to fight for your food. You're going to fight for survival. You're going to fight against the dust, and in the end, the dust is going to win because you're going to be buried six feet underneath it. You will fight dust the rest of your life, and it will win. Women will have tremendous pain in childbirth. This is not just physical pain. So if you're thinking, should I take, you know, epidural and all of this stuff? And it's not just physical pain. This is psychological anxiety, the whole process of it, of can I get pregnant? Can we support this baby? Will this baby survive? Can I, give, can I take care of it? Will, everything surrounding a child, everything surrounding a pregnancy, this is everything it brings in. Anxiety, pain in childbirth. And the serpent is now cursed as well. But with the serpent comes the, what we talked about last week, the proto-evangelion, the first dimension of the gospel. Yes, women, you will have huge pain in child labor. You have labor pains in childbirth, but there's coming from your offspring, one, who will crush the head of the offspring of the serpent. There is coming one who's going to come from the seed of woman, from the offspring of woman, and crush the serpent's head. See, all of the judgment of God is laced with promise. The promise that from the offspring of woman will come a, a one who will crush the serpent's head, but not without wounds. He'll receive a wound as well. See, in the Old Testament, the people of God knew that God deeply hated sin. I think you and I have a sense of this as well. If God is God at all, he deeply hates sin. Not only did God hate sin, but he, that sin made God angry with a holy, righteous anger. This might scare you a little bit. You're in here, you're like, wait, what? that kind of scares me. Isn't that, you can't really say that. Are you allowed to say that here? Maybe you've been to church and people talk a lot about God's holy anger against sin and sinners. God is angry. God hates sin. God will judge the sinner. That the sinner is storing up wrath against, wrath of God against themselves. We poured out on them if they don't repent. But then you come to church, you also hear this. You hear that God is merciful and kind and God is love, that he is patient and long-suffering with you, that he loves you, that the God of the universe loves you. He loves you personally, he loves you individually. You're like, that sounds like a huge paradox to me. It is a paradox because both of them are true. This is the tension of the Old Testament. As you read through the Old Testament, if you've ever read the Old Testament from beginning to end, from Genesis to Malachi, you will see that this is the tension throughout the whole Old Testament, that God is holy and righteous and sovereign and powerful, that he hates sin and his wrath is poured out on the sinner. Death is brought in, labor pains and birth. Dirt produces thorns. There's judgment. But then throughout the Old Testament, God is love. He is merciful towards people. He's compassionate. He's deeply concerned. He clothes Adam and Eve before he sends them out into this rural environment. He clothes them with skins. Eve is called the mother of all living, meaning you're going to live and your descendants after you will live. And I will crush the serpent's head. And when people turn away from God, God gets angry. He disciplines. He forgives. He shows wrath. He shows mercy. There's this strange tension that happens throughout the entire Old Testament. And you don't really know, okay, what, who is God really? I mean, is he God of wrath, God of love, God of wrath, love? I mean, it's just, it flip-flops sometimes in the middle of a chapter. And the tension remains. And the tension remains there until the cross. 
Because at the cross, we see God's deep hatred of sin and his wrath that comes against the sinner, but at the same time, his deep mercy and his love for us. The bloody, brutal cross shows God's anger and hatred towards sin, that justice must be met for our sins, his righteous wrath must be dealt out, but because he gave his son to die on a cross for us, in placing our and taking our punishment, he has shown his deep love for us. So the holiness of God and the kindness of God meet at the cross. The wrath of God and the love of God meet at the cross. We subtitled this series through Genesis, The Gospel Prologue. You might have read that in some of the things that we've been putting on our, our website. And what we meant by that is this. In the book of Genesis, you will start to see the beginnings of the gospel. In the book of Genesis, you will start getting hints of the gospel. Foreshadow of the gospel. The good news that Christ will come as the greater Adam to deal that fatal blow to Satan in his own garden of temptation. And Christ will crush the power of sin, the power of death, and the power of the devil. As it says in Colossians 2, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities, that's serpent and all his minions, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. What happens at the cross is that both the righteousness of God, the holiness of God, and the grace and the mercy of God meet. And so what are you hiding from? If you feel like your sin's too much to bear, if you feel like your sin, the weight of it, maybe the weight of someone else's sin because we live in a, in a world that God has created us to be interconnected. Someone else's sin weighs on you. Someone else's burden weighs on you. What we do is we, we look to Jesus. Because at the cross we see the forgiveness of God for us and the power to forgive others. And as we close, how I want us to reflect and respond to God is with this question. And it might be lingering for like, like the last 10 minutes now. Where, where are you? God is calling out today, where are you? Where are you hiding? What are you hiding behind? Are you hiding in church, religion? Where are you hiding? And I pray that right now that God is, pers is pursuing you, and I know that he has, and I know that God is doing that in this church. God is doing that in this city. I'm hearing supernatural, radical stories of God pursuing people in dreams and meditations and walking down the street and just random stories that are not random at all. Let this place, this, this time as we reflect on God and respond to God be a place where God's pursuing us and us 
stop hiding from God meet. Let's quit hiding from God and let him pursue us. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you are God who's near, who cares. And we see, Lord, at the cross, both your justice and your mercy meet. We see both your mercy in covering Adam and Eve, but then also keeping them from that tree of life. We see both of those things meet at the cross. And I pray, God, though we were blocked from going in and eating from the tree of life, we're offered something better still in the gospel. You said, this is my body and this is my blood. Take and eat. I pray that communion today would be a powerful reminder of the debt you paid for us and how we can be reconciled to you, how we can walk in the light and live in the light. We respond to you now. In Jesus' name.